0: You are listening to Recab Gray, guest speaker of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Considering Our Confession, recorded on March 6th, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Recab as he preaches. What's going on Harvest? How y'all doing? How y'all doing? Good to see you guys. <laughs> um we're going to I want to give you the passage first so y'all can turn there while I do some preliminaries we're going to be in Romans chapter ten, starting at verse five we're going to be going through thirteen verse thirteen so Romans chapter ten verses five through thirteen is where we're going to camp out today uh, first of all, uh, I was actually uh at, enabled to be able to come just want to make sure it's up there so I was enabled to come uh yesterday to I don't know what you guys call it, but there were a lot of animal heads on the walls for sure. And uh, many people don't know this about me, so you guys will learn something new. I lived in Alaska for three years when I was growing up, uh, so Black people have and do live in Alaska. Uh, I know that's like weird for some of y'all, but it's true. It's true. I was not the only one there. And so the first time I saw one of these, um, first time I saw one of these heads on the wall, man, like. I could have sworn, like for real, I could have sworn I saw like the grizzly bear move his claw a little bit, like just a little bit. So when I was in Alaska, I was freaked out by this. And so yesterday I come here. This is the first time I've seen this in probably 20 years. I come up here and I see these heads on the wall again, and I try to play it all cool. I stayed in the back here. If anybody was here. Y'all thought I was just being cool, just because like I was just trying to stay in the back, not be recognized. No, I was freaked out by all these animal heads on the side of the wall here. And so, please, 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 do not ever do that again <laughs> while I am in your midst. All right, all right. That goes to you too, my man. I know you had a lot to do with that, yo. So, um, let's go ahead and uh, jump in. I want to do something a little bit different today. If you don't mind, because the nature of this passage, if we can read verses 9 and 10 together standing. Can we do that? If you can stand with me, let's read verses 9 and 10 together. All right, we're going to do this in a timely fashion, all right? So I'll start you guys off on a good rhythm, and let's see if y'all can keep pace. Here we go. Verse 9, One, two, three. because If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Wonderful, God. Give yourself a hand of clout. I like that. I like that. You may be seated. You may be seated. I'm going to weirdly start this, uh, this sermon off with an intro that might seem a little weird to you, especially coming from an African-American dude, but uh, I'm not going to go where you think I'm going to go with it. Uh, but there's been one trial in history, especially in the United States, that has captivated an audience greater than any other trial, and that's the O.J. Simpson trial, okay? Now, I'm not here to talk about guilty innocence, so don't get freaked out, y'all, all right? Um, But what I found very interesting about that trial is how they came to get a verdict. Like at at the beginning of the trial, it was all about the evidence and the facts of the case. But by the end of the trial, both the defense and the prosecution were just trying to use outside resources just to defame character or what have you in order to get either a guilty or an innocent verdict. And at the end of the day, 20 years later everybody's still asking the same question, was justice served? Now I think about even in our time today, uh, we have a lot of cases that are not just evidences where we're taking pictures of blood here and gun bullets there and all of that stuff, but they're actually caught on camera. And once again, we leave asking ourselves, was justice served? And the reason why we ask ourselves that is mainly because of the fact that our justice system, whether we try really hard, no matter, and this doesn't, this has nothing to do with with the United States. This is worldwide. You can't have a perfect justice system with faulty pieces. And the faulty pieces are human beings. How do you make a perfect car out of some junkyard parts? It just doesn't work like that. And so we will. It's inevitable and it's undeniable that our justice system is faulty. Now, this should make us long for a coming justice, a justice that's perfect, a justice that's always right. It should make us long for that. Or should it? Like, it'll make you long for it if you think that you're on the good side of justice, If you think that you're always on the right side of justice, you did enough in your little lifetime in order to be on the right side of justice. But what if you're guilty? And what if this isn't some obscure courtroom in California somewhere, but what if this is in heaven itself? And the one presiding over your case is perfectly righteous and knows all and sees all, and by the way, is intimately involved with every crime committed As the victim. Could you imagine getting drunk one day going into the bar? No, none of y'all do that now. Just talking about back in the day before Christ, where you get drunk in the in the club, in the bar, and you end up just for whatever reason being angry at the one guy with the dark hair right in the corner. He didn't really do anything to you, and you end up whacking him over the head with a uh, with a broken bottle. Now, could you imagine? getting charged with that, waking up, realizing what you did, you're in the courtroom, you pay a lot of money for, your, for a lawyer to basically get you off as innocent, and in, the court official says, all rise, and the person you see walking out is that man in the corner that you hit over the head with the glass bottle. You, you think you're, you have bowel movements when you go to McDonald's. <laughs> Bruh, it's going to be messed up for you in there. So we, 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 have, we have this system in heaven where one judge, no jury, is trying to figure out, are they lying to me? Are they not lying to me? Can I, can I try to figure this out? He sounds real smart. He doesn't sound real smart. Is that a good witness? Is that not a good witness? No jury. We're not taking a vote. One judge, perfectly righteous, always gets the judgment right. No criminal investigative team. One crime scene investigator who knows not just the external evidence, but the very thoughts and intents of the crimes that you didn't get a chance to commit against them. And here's your accuser. Check this out. He's a death row inmate as well. Could you imagine in Pennsylvania them allowing death row inmates to do the prosecution, getting a chance to have somebody sitting right next to them in the cell with them? Satan, all he lives for is to get other people under the same condemnation that he's already under. Now, with all of that stacked against you, how in the world can you be found innocent? How in the world can we be found innocent? One judge, one crime scene investigator who knows your heart, one prosecution, who lives to accuse you, how can you find innocence in that courtroom? Well, that's all that Paul really wants to talk about here. Literally, all he's been talking about for the entire book of Romans. And so let's just go ahead and jump into verse 5. So it says this in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, there's two reasons why our ears should perk up when we hear just this first part. First reason is because he's talking about righteousness and law. Okay, now righteousness in its varied ways, they they speak of justification, your translation might say justified, righteous, righteousness, but in all its varied forms, both righteousness and law are used 103 times in this book. A hundred times come before or during this passage, which means this is the culminating work on righteousness and law in the book of Romans. So we got to peep our ears to what he's about to say. Second reason we should peep our ears is because he's talking about Moses. Like, Moses is the prophet of prophets. If, if my man Ben Roethlisberger came in the back door right now, everybody would just turn from the preaching. All of y'all say y'all Christians, y'all love Jesus. He comes in the building, y'all are turning away from the word of God into to Ben Roethlisberger. Okay? This is how they think about Moses. Moses is the prophet of prophets. So listen to what he says about righteousness, the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, what does he mean, shall live by them? Well, if you look at Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 through 16, listen to what he says right here. He says, see, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments, you shall live. So what happens if you rebel against the commandments? You shall die. It's that simple. But this is good news. Like everything in our world is trying to figure out how we can live longer. He's giving the answer right here. Just do the commandments, right? It's like a, it's like a good commercial gone wrong. Uh, I, I remember when I was a young boy, uh, and this kind of date myself a little bit, but I remember when Nintendo first came out. So I got the Nintendo and I got Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo. It was a tough game. I still think it's like the best game ever. So I'm playing Super Mario. Then they come out with the Super Nintendo. And this Super Nintendo, you get Super Mario Brothers, but you get them with Yoshi. And I was in love with Yoshi. So I go to my friend's house and I start playing the game. The game's longer. The gameplay is better. The graphics at that time were like top of the line. Now it's a joke, but I mean, that was the, the, the game of games. So I go back home, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get all my money to kind of get this game that I want to buy that I've been playing over at my friend's house? And then it dawns on me, no matter if I bought the game, all that was promised in the game itself, I couldn't access because I didn't have the right system. I didn't have the right system. I had the old system, the broken system. This you can only play on Super Nintendo, and I had the regular one, the wrong system what this is promising us is life by doing the commandments. The problem is we have the wrong system. We just don't have the right system. It's broken. Adam messed all of that up. And so now we're trying to figure out how we can live by doing the commandments, and it just doesn't work for us because we're working from the wrong system. Well, here it is. We need a new system. So he comes to this system. But righteousness that is based on faith, ah, wow, that's a relief. There's a new righteousness that we can get that's not by the law. Thank God. But he says righteousness that is based on the faith says something different. Now, this is very interesting. Listen to what it says, and I I don't want you to get confused by what's going on here because this is a confusing passage for many people. So just listen to what he says. He says, it says this, do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, if you look throughout the Bible and you start looking into the abyss and you start looking into ascension, you might get really confused by this passage. But Paul is really kind of making a joke right here. It's not as complicated as we think. Paul's whole deal with the law, his main frustration with works of the law is that it gives people a chance to boast before an all-powerful God. He starts with chapter 2, verse 1, and he's talking about don't judge one another. Why? Not just because it looks bad and not just because we get cool tattoos of nobody can judge me except for God. But The reason why he doesn't like people judging one another is because they do the same works that they're judging other people for. Then he goes on in chapter four, and he says the same thing about Abraham. For if Abraham was justified by works of the law, Abraham would have something to boast in. The problem with the works of the law is that you can boast, but righteousness based on faith is not based on something you do, but based on something that someone has done for you. So where's the boasting in that? And so what he's really saying is he's kind of clowning them. He's like, yo, look, did you ascend into heaven and bring Christ down to earth? Like, were you in the council of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, when they were devising this plan to redeem mankind that they knew would rebel against them? Like, were you there? Did you have anything to do with that? Okay, maybe, I'm tripping, but maybe once it was time for Christ to actually come down, you were the one who took little Christ by the hand and said, come on here, little Jesus, we need to get this job done. Were you involved in that? No. So if you weren't involved in that, you have nothing to boast in when it comes to bringing Jesus Christ down. He did that all on his own for you. Well, well, what about him raising from the dead? Maybe after the crucifixion, after he was in the grave, you went into the grave and you had the power to raise him from the dead. You had anything to do with that? Did did anybody here have anything to do with that? No. She says, you got nothing to boast in when it comes to righteousness based on faith. All of your boasting must be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's what's interesting about what he says next. He says, the word is near you, In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what I love about this, it is near you, is he's juxtaposing it against what he just said. He's saying, we couldn't reach high enough to bring Christ down, we couldn't go low enough to bring Christ up from the dead. Literally, God serves him on a platter as though we are his waiters and waitresses into the world so that just by the proclamation of the gospel we might have salvation. Literally, he brings it to us through the proclamation of the word. I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. Like, God, who already is given us enough by just sending his son says i'll make it easy i won't make you even have to go and get the food that i've already cooked up i'll have my waiters and waitresses those people who i've called to myself to go and send out this wonderful entree of the gospel to every single sector of the world and that's your job on your that's your job on your career that's your job when you're in school that's your job as a teacher That's that's your job when you're going out hunting. That's your job everywhere you go that you would be his waiter or waitress to bring the entree of the gospel to every single section of your lives because it should be near to those who are around other believers. It should be right there because it's on our lips. And so he says, the word is near you. And What this does is if I didn't go up to bring Christ down and I didn't go down to bring Christ up, can I boast in anything? Is there anything I can boast in? No, but our culture doesn't think like this. I remember I was on Facebook one time and there was something out and, and people were commenting on this particular post and comment after comment after comment was all about how I myself had a drunk dad or I myself had a mom who left when I was five and I myself pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, worked very hard, and now I'm successful, a product of me. Me and my own doing, me and my own work, me and my own attempts to make something out of my life. And what they were saying was that everyone who's not successful like I am just isn't working hard enough. And somehow this thinking has seeped into the church. And this is why we can't sometimes understand the gospel. It's not to say don't work hard, but it's to say that there is absolutely nothing in its truest sense that you weren't given by God. I realized this most pertinently when I went to Malawi, Africa, where women, not men, women are picking up 25, 50-pound jugs of water, placing them on their head, walking five miles back and forth, just to get a cup of water, just so their kids can drink water. They work way harder than we do, way harder. Do they have a more successful life? Is their life better off? No. But by God's grace, we've been born in this country where we have access to things that other people don't have access to. And the reality is, is each of us specifically where we are have been graced with particular things that blesses us in order to be able to do one thing. Proclaim the excellencies of God. And so we don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in ourselves in anything. We boast only in the person and work Jesus Christ. And so that's the first point for you guys. Boast in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to point two. Second point, believe in the person and work of Christ. Believe in the person and work of Christ. Let's look at uh, verses 9 and 10. It says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, here's the question, because we talk a lot, especially in our circles, just about belief, about faith, about that, that thing in our heart that says, I concur with Christ that he is the Savior of the world. I I confirm that, I affirm that, truth. I say the same thing, that's literally all confession means. But here it is, why is that important, the confession part? Well, here's the thing that Paul wants us to understand, and there is no writer in Scripture that doesn't agree with this. Faith is expressed. Faith is expressed. Not should be expressed, not can be expressed, not could be, would be expressed, faith itself is always expressed. If you have genuine faith, you will express it. There's no getting around that, especially not with Paul. And so why is the confession important? Because faith is expressed. And what is the weight of this particular confession? Well, there's two things I want to look at. I want to first look at the person of Christ, and I want to second look at the work of Christ, which we see in verses 9 and 10. So first we have the dual weight of the person of Jesus. He says this, he says, if you confess, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So there's two weights to this. The first one is this, is that claiming Jesus is Lord means that he's Lord against all other lords. Literally this, this word in, uh, in, in Greek, when you look at uh, the book of Revelation, it really more means emperor of emperors. Literally, a juxtaposition, an antithesis to the empire of Caesar. So it it literally means Christ is the emperor of emperors. There is no emperor greater than Christ. But this confession means more than that. It also means that Christ is Lord Yahweh of the Old Testament. See, the first one would mess up all the Greeks. You're talking about somebody greater than Caesar? We don't mess around with that, bro. But the second one is going to mess up all the Jews in the house. Look at what he says in uh, verse 13. He says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, he just said, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. Now, if you look at what he's quoting there, in verse 13, he's quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 32, which which uses the covenant name Yahweh. So literally, Paul here is saying that Jesus is Yahweh of Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Now, how crazy is that? Well, it's only crazy if Jesus actually isn't God, if he actually isn't Yahweh, but we know that he is. And here's the thing that that impacts us the most. See, if Jesus is just another Lord, we have Lords all throughout our lives. Our boss could be considered a Lord. We have teachers that can be considered our lords. We have professors that can be considered our lords. In different spheres of life, we have people who rule and reign over us. But when you say that Jesus is Yahweh, that Lord, that means that his lordship is not only better and superior to other lords, but it means that it actually reigns over other lords. So that means that Jesus, by being Yahweh, lords over every single sector of your life, even the ones that are uncomfortable for you. Can I read you guys this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis real quick? This is what C.S. Lewis says, and it's in a fiction book. Um, it was part of the his Space Trilogy, but I just love this quote. This convicted the mess out of my heart. He says this, in all these matters. See, see what we like to do a lot of times as Christians is we come to Christ, okay, and say you're a nice person. Well, then you come to Christ, and what do you do? You just become nicer. You're just nicer to everybody at church. You come to Christ, and maybe you're a servant. Well, what do you do when you come to Jesus? You just become more of a servant in Jesus, and you never really allow Christ's lordship to affect those areas that you don't like to step on. Like, I was a nice guy before I came to Christ. I really was, but I was also a recluse. I didn't like being around people. That's a weird combination. You like to be nice in a surface level, but you don't like to actually know the people that you're being nice to. That was recap. So I come to the faith and here it is, Paul and Peter are talking so much about life in the Christian faith being with one another, literally carrying one another's burdens. That means I gotta actually know the burdens of my brothers and sisters. That was weird for me. That was uncomfortable for me. I thought that I could get away with being a good Christian by doing the things I was already doing, just upgrading them a little bit. But this, like affecting those parts of my life that I didn't like, that was uncomfortable. So this is what C.S. Lewis says as it relates to that. He says, in all these other matters, those matters that you already do naturally, what you call obeying him is only doing what is right in your own eyes also. Where can you taste, listen believers, where can you taste the joy of obeying for which his bidding is the only reason that you obey? In other words, where in your life can you say, I've tasted the joy of obedience and the the only reason that I obey in that area is because Jesus Christ calls me to? Where in your life can you taste of that joy? That's what his lordship looks like. See, obedience that just comes naturally is probably not submission, but coincidental submission through self-satisfaction. Coincidental. It just so happens that the Bible and what you already want to do line up in that area. But what happens when what the Bible wants you to do and what you want to do don't really line up? Do you still obey? That's when Jesus is really being Lord in your life and in your heart. So that's the person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the work of Jesus Christ. All he's going to talk about here is death and resurrection. He says, and believe in your heart, verse 9, that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Now, I hope we know that for Jesus to be raised from the dead, he had to be dead first. So we, we can see that in this passage. He's talking not about just raising somebody from the dead who's been alive the whole time. Jesus literally died. And so his debt secured some stuff for us and his resurrection secured some stuff for us. Let's look at what his debt secured for us. First off, his death secures justification. And that really, that's just a fancy word for the fact that we have been made or declared righteous by God. And I got a lot of ways I could go with this, but I want to illustrate it this way. This is a football town, right? You got Steelers fans? We got any Steelers fans in the house? Okay, uh, who, Okay. somebody barking, all right. Um, one of the worst plays in football, I'm a Saints fan, and this happens a lot, is the holding call. And I'm gonna tell you why the holding call is so frustrating. Because I've seen it over and over and over again. Drew Brees throws a sweet one right down the middle. Coaston grabs it with one hand. Stiffs on my man right here jumps over another tackle, spins to get past the last safety, and then dances into the end zone, spiking that jump. And you know I'm going crazy, lost all my water, everything, juices are flying all around the house, right? Then you realize that yellow stinking flag is on the field. And the frustrating thing about the flag is that you can do all of that work. After, after, after the pass has already been thrown, you can get all of that work done. And no matter what, once the flag is on the field, the penalty will be assessed at the end of the play. It will be assessed at the end of the play. No getting around that. This is what life is like. We come into this world with a yellow flag already on the field. We come into this world with a yellow flag already on the field. By nature of your birth, you are a sinner. The yellow flag has already been thrown on the field. And I don't care how many juke moves you do. I don't care if it was a one-handed grab. I don't care how many times you've gone to church. I don't care how faithful you are to your wife. Without Christ, the penalty flag will be assessed at the end of the play. Once the play is dead, once all of life stops, the penalty will be assessed at the end of the play. And the only way, the only way of getting around that penalty being assessed is for the opposing coach, the opposing coach to say, Penalty decline. Penalty decline. And so when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, went up that rugged hill, stretched his arms like this. He was literally saying for every single person who places their trust in him, penalty declined. You are justified by faith in him. That's what justification is. So what is resurrection? Resurrection secures glorification for us And both resurrection and justification, I mean, and his death together secure sanctification for us. Why do we get sanctification through his death and resurrection? Well, sanctification literally is just a process by which we're made more like Christ. And if we have sin, then we have to put off some stuff, literally put to death some things, and we also have to live to some things, live to his glorious righteousness, right? Well, his resurrection also secures glorification, And glorification is something that I feel like we don't talk about enough because glorification is at the end of the process where we get to see Savior face to face. And John says that we will be made like him. Paul says we will be raised just as he is raised. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing, which is the only thing in this world that can actually bring literal hope. What I find, and this is one of the saddest things um, in the world, is I find that we happen to be a society full of hopelessness. Look at what verse 11 says. It says, for the scripture says this, that everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I like the way F.F. F. Bruce says it. He says it this way, whoever trusts in him will not be let down. You won't be let down if you place your trust in Christ. The problem with this is you have to place all of your trust in Christ and none in yourself, none in yourself. And our society teaches us to depend on me. And then here's, here's how crazy it works. I'm taught to depend on me. Then when I let me down, I'm angry with who else? Me. Me. When anybody lets you down, and you know this is true, there's a process that goes through your mind. First, you're angry. Then you want to retaliate. But what happens when the person who lets you down the most is yourself? How do you retaliate on you? It's called depression. It's called suicidal thoughts because we're taught so much to depend on me. Then we let us down and we have nobody retaliate against except for us. Rousey, y'all, y'all know who this is, a uh, UFC women's fighter. I remember her being on, I think it was Ellen DeGeneres. Lost one fight. One fight. And she literally was talking about how she had nothing but suicidal thoughts running through her mind after that. You know why? She was taught to depend on her. She let her down. There's nobody to retaliate against except for her. And I... Maybe I'm the only one who's had these types of thoughts in my head before. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not, but maybe I'm the only one. When you get these thoughts, who can you go to? Because the only person that you've been taught to depend on is you, and you're the one who's failed you the most. Where do you get hope from? This passage says, those who trust in him won't be let down. There's a certainty of hope that comes with the resurrection. Uh, This this is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard, and it had me in tears. Uh, Monty Williams is an assistant basketball coach uh, for the New Orleans uh, Pelicans. Pelicans? Hornets now? Pelicans. There we go. And so um, his wife died, leaving behind five children in a brutal accident. And in a world, in the NBA, where there's a lot of adultery going on, a lot of affairs going on, all types of sexual promiscuity, this man was faithful to his wife. He would just talk about how he wanted to get out of the office just to be with her. No TV, just to sit down and talk with his wife. He lost his partner and the mother of his five children. At his funeral, though, listen to this. He talks about the fact that I will never say I lost my wife. Never say I lost my wife. Why? Because when you lose something, you don't know where it is. I know exactly where my wife is. She is in heaven with the Jesus that she served on earth. Do you hear the certainty of that? Lost the mother of his five children. And yet with certainty, with certainty, He knows for sure that he will be reunited with his wife again. Not based on some weird philosophies about, you know, sitting like this, humming to yourself, thinking cool thoughts, all of these cool things. No! The reason why he knows for certain that he's going to see his wife is because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only reason. I want to tell you guys this quick story, and then I'm going to move to the last point. I remember, this is, I got to keep it together with this one. I was on a plane ride uh, down to Dallas uh, for a conference. And I was on the plane, and I was sitting next to an older lady, about, about 20 years my older. So um, I didn't think we were going to talk. This was a white elderly lady. She didn't seem like she wanted to talk at first. But then she just literally turns to me and she says, are you with that guy? I was like, yeah, he's going with the trip with us. And she was like, man, I have never seen someone so nice. He gave up his spot in line for me. He, he just decided to let me go in front of him. And then he offered to carry my bags and put them in the shelf up top. All of this, I get a conversation with this lady just because another believer was being a believer. Now, I just want to just as a side note, I just want to leave that there and say, don't ever forget that you're always being watched as a Christian, that every single thing that you do in your life should literally proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And people see it, and they understand it, they grasp it, and it opens up these conversations. So I'm on the plane with this young lady, this, this is lady, and ah, this was tough. Because she's not a Christian, she was a psychiatrist. She's had all types of people in her office. And she says, We're talking about Christianity. She thinks it's like a man's religion, all of this stuff. And she gets to the point where she says, But you know the one thing I remember growing up that I liked about going to Catholic school? I said, What? She said, When they would talk about heaven. There was something I liked when they would talk about heaven. Can you tell me a little bit about heaven? I'm like, What? You pray for opportunity to share the gospel, but not this easy. I mean, she just literally just served it to me, and I just got a toss just like waiting for it, kickoff return type stuff. So she tosses it to me. I'm like, heck yeah, I'll tell you about heaven. Where do I start? But then I realized, you know what, let me, let me be honest with this young lady. And I said, this, I said this, I was like, there are many people who talk about heaven from different religions and even Christians and they like to emphasize the streets of gold. They like to emphasize the mansion that they're going to get there. They like to emphasize the wings that they might get and They'll be able to fly around and disappear and reappear in different places. And they're like, all that stuff. And I'm like, yo, some of that stuff sounds real cool. I can't wait for some of that either. But I said, I know I know a real Christian when the first thing that comes out of their mouth when they talk about heaven is I just can't wait to see the face of the one who died for me. Amen. I just can't wait to see his face. And this is her response. Tears flowing down this nonbeliever's face. Tears rolling down her face, uncontrollable. And she finally gathered herself and said, I have never heard something so beautiful in my life. That's the hope that we possess. That's the hope that we possess. And so if you're not a believer, believe the gospel because only that provides the hope that you need. But if you are a believer, remember, 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 remember the person and work of Jesus Christ because that is your only hope for day-to-day operations. Amen? get to his last point, and then I'm out of your way. Let's do this. It says this, be united in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Boast in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be united in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Real quick, Look at verse 11 again. It says, For the scripture says, Everyone, there's not some people, there's not only the cool people, there's not only the jocks, this is not only the nerds, there's not only white folks, there's not only black folk, there's not only rich folk, there's not only poor folk. I gotta do this because we in our society classify everything. But here he's not classifying anything. He says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame says, if you didn't catch that part, let me keep going. For there is no distinction. And he uses this same phrase when he's talking about there is no distinction between those who have sinned, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, here he says something different. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He says, the Lord of all. This is very unifying and polarizing. It's unifying because everyone who believes in him has the same access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. It's polarizing because if you don't, if you don't, then it's literally saying that those who place their confidence in Christ have access that those who don't, don't have. You know how upsetting that would be if if I was on a car train or train with somebody and they got access to first class and I had to sit in the back with all the the suitcases and all that nonsense? It's not not a fun idea. But what Paul is saying here is not, look, make yourself distance between believer and non-believer. What he's saying is that we need to present the gospel in such a way that everybody realizes that it's a universal call that everyone has access to this. Just trust in Him. And this is very unifying for believers, but frustratingly enough, this is hurtful and harmful, y'all. Frustratingly enough, the church many times are the biggest advocates for distinction and disdain and separation like there is in a lot of ways no place like the church that literally wants to split ourselves all from each other based on the smallest dumbest things in our earth like can can you imagine god coming back jesus returning and seeing such a divided church what's going to grieve his heart and i'm not just talking about race y'all i'm talking about everything we are a cliquish church here in the west very clickish, And we got to do something different about that. Look at what it says. And this is what I love about it. He says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. So this means that not only is there not a distinction made based on race as it pertains to salvation, but there cannot, there can also not be a distinction based on riches as it pertains to salvation. There's no distinction as it pertains to salvation. Now, this does not mean that we're colorblind and don't realize that somebody's poor when they're poor. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to actually help them out. This is not putting blinders on and saying we're all the same. It is saying that we have the most important thing in common, though. It is saying that the gospel unifies us, and it is saying that, and I can not say it as good as he does, so let me read it for you. Romans chapter 15, verse seven says this. Therefore, therefore, all of this has been said, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What I love about coming here, and I was talking to Mike in the car. I've been so welcome, y'all. I I have, my, my wife loves her weekends. I mean, her weekends are untouchable nobody's grabbing her weekends from her, and I've made many travels to preach or teach or whatever or go to conference, whatever. This is the only place that she will literally go with me. (laughs) That means a lot. It means a lot. And so thank you guys for the welcome, but I want you guys to always think about that in your different scopes of life as well. Not just to welcome a preacher when he comes to preach and being so hospitable, but even welcoming those amongst you who are hurting, who are in need, neighbors that you know, co-workers that you know who are in pain, and you somehow think that you can't relate to them because you don't have the same issues. What he's saying is here is there's no distinction. There is no distinction. We are all in need of grace. And God has provided that same grace for all of us. So how can we bicker and beef? So let me quickly reiterate these points. Let's boast in Christ. Boast in the person and work of Christ. Believe in the person and work of Christ. But be united in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Leave it with this illustration, y'all. <laughs> um, I don't know if y'all have fraternities where you guys grew up and all of that. But frats were like a big thing, especially in the black community. And why it's big is because it offers people a chance to have a brotherhood that outside of that, they really don't have access to. And I say it again and again and again, that the Christians have the corner market on brotherhood because only in our faith is God our real father. Okay, so we should have the corner market on all this brotherhood, sisterhood stuff. That being said, frats do this thing. What I find interesting are the lengths that they'll go to just to have a brotherhood, like they will literally. I've 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 roomed with, with fraternity people. They will literally put their head down, their hoodies down. They room with me, and they can't talk to me if they're walking down Moss Street because down Moss Street there are people who say you can't talk on that block. But cut up Thirteenth and you can talk again. Like weird stuff. One of the other things that they have to do is just real weird. Like if I call his name, he has to say Jiminy Cricket before he says anything else. So I'm like, Yo, Van, man, I, I had a tough Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, I feel what you're saying, man. That's that's tough life. I'm like, Did you just say Jiminy Cricket, bro? Like that? Don't just like go over that. I, I had a bad day, but now we got to get back to this. Are you okay, Jiminy Cricket? Yeah, I'm I'm all right, man. It's just some weird thing that we got. Bro, stop doing that. It's weird to me. But they'll go even further just for their brotherhood. These guys will literally brand themselves, hot iron brand themselves to proclaim their bond as brothers. All I'm asking for us to do is bond as brothers so that we can proclaim our brand, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church we invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.